Okay, welcome to Urban Forum Northwest with your co-hosts Hayward Evans and Eddie Rye. Our first guest is uh, Senator Bob Hasegawa. Uh, he is famous for putting forth uh, legislation to create a state-owned bank uh, for Washington State. And I know it's been studied and studied, so uh, what I'd like to do is ask Senator Hasegawa, first of all, sir, thank you very hey, much for making time for Urban Forum Northwest. Oh, and also, question. go right ahead. Yeah, hey, Hayward, how are you doing, man? Uh-oh, your tech dropped off. No, go ahead. No, no we're on. I think Hayward might have his phone on. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Yeah. so uh, quick background. You know, we've been trying to get a business plan developed by the uh, Dan Evans School of Public Policy and Governance, uh, which was supposed to have delivered a business plan to us last June. We've been working on this for a couple of years, had it funded through the state budget, but uh, there are mysterious forces working behind the curtain that we're not seeing. You know, it's like the land of Oz. And for whatever reasons, they're not producing anything, not hardly even cooperating with us to develop a business plan. So we took back control of the business plan process this year and put it in the budget that the House House of Representatives and the Senate will pick a qualified business plan writer to develop the business plan, a public business, public banking business plan. Because, you know, public banks, are you have to look at them through a different lens than commercial public banks, although they do the same things. But the philosophy is entirely different, right? We're not, a, a public bank isn't about just making as much profit for shareholders and CEOs as possible. It's about providing the biggest benefit for the communities. So we need a business plan writer that's familiar with that philosophy. So we're going to get that done. But we have one big obstacle between now and then, which is the state treasurer is trying his best to get the governor to veto that out of our state budget. So the governor has not signed the budget yet and has not done his work on the budget. But the governor, from his perspective, is trying to save as much money as possible because of the uncertainties of this coronavirus, right. COVID-19 thing. So he's looking at all kinds of things to to chop out of the budget just to save money. But, you know, we, we in the last budget, we put in $200 million in the budget to deal with coronavirus response. So our little paltry $250,000 budget proviso to write a business plan is nothing compared to the $200 million we've already spent. And we already have a commitment to go back into special session if even more money is necessary. But this budget, we ended with the almost a billion-dollar ending fund balance, which means we spent, we left unspent almost a billion dollars which we could have spent in this budget. So that's in reserve. We got a record high amount in our budget stabilization account, which is the rainy day fund. And, you know, we just clawed back some tax incentives, tax breaks from the aerospace industry and Boeing because the WTO forced us to do that. So it's not like you need to cut 250000 out of the budget. So I would ask all your listeners to get in touch with the governance. They do not veto the state bank budget proviso. Just a very simple message. 
Uh, absolutely, and Alex certainly will. Would you uh, explain to our listeners, Senator Bob Hasegawa, what the advantages are for small businesses and just everyday tax-paying citizens? What's the advantage of having a state bank? Well, a state bank would work counter-cyclical to how the economy is going. So when the economy is going down or there's a lot of uncertainty, that's when the a public bank could create money on its balance sheet and inject it back into our communities to make sure that small businesses don't uh, die because of cash shortages or whatever, you know. We can get the economy going by stimulating the economy or stimulate the economy by putting creating money on the books of the bank. And then hey, go ahead. Oh, and yeah. then when those loans get repaid we're repaying it back to ourselves, so we're building even greater capacity to do greater things down the road, rather than giving it to Wall Street as profit. Well, it was amazing. A couple of years ago, uh, you had one, 50 people from all across the state, Republicans, Democrats, independents, uh, right-wingers, left-wingers, all supporting the state banking bill, and yeah. the broke-leg bank lobbyists had more clout than all of us. I saw him uh, uh, during this past session last month. His leg is still broke, and he's on crutches, but he's now representing the real estate industry. So <laughs> we might have some help. I know Hayward has studied this issue very closely, too. Hayward? Yeah, yeah. Senator Hudson, for me and, and all the listenership, a public bank is much safer than a huge multinational corporation. We know this. And I, oh, yeah. I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, Senator, currently the state's spending over $3 billion just in debt service to Wall Street. Is that correct? Yeah, well, our last budget, it, it, if you include the transportation budget, too, we were over $3.5 billion, almost $4 billion in, in bonds that we were selling. So, you know, of course— So that's that money that we're— Go ahead. No, I was going to say, that, so that's money that would have stayed in the state, and we're paying ourselves. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So that $4 oh. billion— you know, when it's like taking out a mortgage, we we ask Wall Street if they would give us four billion dollars, and in return we have to repay that money plus interest over the next twenty-five to thirty years. So normally, you end up at least doubling, maybe tripling the cost of what you actually got. So that four billion dollars ends up anywhere between eight to twelve billion dollars costing us out of our general fund money that otherwise would be going to schools and education and whatnot, going back as profit to Wall Street. Well, I got two questions. I know the listenership is thinking about this. Is there any example where can a state bank really work? And then also, is it unfair to the traditional banks, the community banks that are out there now? Would it put them out of business? Yeah, those are both good questions. So the whole rest of the world civilized world uses public banking as their public financing base, the infrastructure. Uh, in the United States, we rely on commercial banks rather than public banks. So the whole rest of the world has lots of examples of how it works. And even in the United States, we have the Bank of North Dakota, which is last year celebrated its 100th anniversary. And it's like the talk of the town in banking circles or public banking circles about um, as a model that we should try to emulate. But uh, 
What was your second question again? I got carried away on your first one. The, uh, the, uh, uh, could it really work? I know that there's an example in North Dakota. Have, have the people from the legislature interviewed any other representatives out of North Dakota on this issue? Oh, yeah. I've talked with them directly. I've gone to Bismarck to visit the bank just to check it out. It's, it's an amazing resource for the people of North Dakota, you know, and they all love it. As conservative and red a state as that is, well, you don't dare talk about taking away their public bank because it provides student loan. Every student that goes to college back there has their student loan from the Bank of North Dakota. I actually have a video on my legislative website where I interviewed a group of North Dakota students that happened to be in town here, so I caught up with them and asked them if I could interview them on my iPhone, and they did. So it was, it was great. That was pretty Yeah, cool. we do have uh, the one presentation you made. I uh, put it up on my Facebook page to let people know you'd be on today. But I want to change subject right quick because we have a more pressing issue. Uh, uh-huh. Most people can't go, go in a bank unless there's fewer than 10 people. Uh, the state's response to uh, the coronavirus, uh-huh. what is your estimate? What, 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 do you, what do you see right now? What do I see with regard to In the terms response? of the treatment, the state's response, right. Uh, you know... It is what it is to me. Um, I, I, sh- I probably shouldn't say what I really think about it. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm staying at home. I'm, I'm being the good citizen and trying to do my part to contain the spread. Um, as far as the yeah, government... older folk must stick together. Yeah. As far as the government's response to it, uh, I think they're actually doing a pretty good job, although it may be a little bit of an overreach and overreaction in some sense. But, um, you know, who knows? Uh, I'm just along for the ride on this at this point because, you know, we've given them the resources to deal with it. We gave them broad latitude on how to use those resources. And, you know, there's professionals out there that, know better than me how to apply those resources. So like I'm saying, $200 million may or may not be enough to deal with this issue, but, you know, we got to figure out a way to keep the small businesses afloat, keep uh, people sheltered and make sure that there's food on their tables because so many people are getting laid off. And, you know, what I actually think should happen is the governor should declare a moratorium on debt because then... Uh, like we're we're giving people um, exemptions from uh, evictions, which is a good thing, and mortgage. Uh, well, people have to make mortgage payments. So if we're keeping people from becoming evicted or foreclosed on, what do those landlords? How do they make their mortgage payments? You know, if the Tenants can't pay them, don't have to pay them. So we need to make sure that the, the landlords also are protected in a sense so they don't lose their homes. You know, Senator, that is brilliant. Is that being entertained at any level? That's brilliant. That makes so much sense. Well, I don't know if it's being entertained right now. But, you know, actually... The Bank of North Dakota did that during the Great Depression in the 1930s, is that the governor of North Dakota declared a moratorium on debt. And 
that's the beauty of the bank. The bank can create money on its books, right, during tough times. So banks are, public banks are counter-cyclical. They in, inject money into our economy when it's tanking so that it keeps the economy afloat. So it's like a shock absorber or a stabilizer for the economy. So as they did that, they declared a moratorium on debt. They, they didn't foreclose on homes or farms. Uh, in North Dakota, and the bank held the paper on them until the economy recovered, and then they let the the farmers and the mortgagees uh, just continue on with life and start making money and forgave that didn't forgive the debt. Of course, they had to re- still repay it, but they nobody lost the time. Is it reincorporated? Is it reincorporated in their loan somehow? Because I don't see the multinational banking institutions. And mortgage companies being too happy about waiting for payment. Yeah, well, you know, if you look on the web on what other countries are doing, banks are, they're national banks, public banks are stepping up and doing a lot of this stuff. But I don't hear anything that banks around here are doing for the people right now. So, well, I think you used the operative word, public bank. That's why your bill is so critical that yeah. we can get it through. And now more than ever. So uh, please ask your listeners to be sure and contact the governor's office. You can do it easily on the web and just say, do not veto the public bank business plan provider. Yeah, 360-753-6780. It's the Governor Jansley's phone number. Awesome. <laughs> 360-753-6780 is Thanks, uh, Governor Hensley's number. So, uh, well, Senator Bob, uh, we certainly appreciate your time and your efforts, and I want you to keep us surprised of what we can do in yeah. the community to support uh, uh, equity in the financial industry, especially having capital uh, for people in my neighborhood that need access for their businesses, for home loans and everything else. Yeah. So we certainly appreciate uh, the stuff that you've been doing. Well, thanks, brother. Appreciate it, man. Appreciate what you're doing for the community, too, getting word out. So. All right, now, so All right. Senator Bob Hasegawa, thank you very yeah. much, and we'll be talking to you soon. Hey, Eddie Hayward. Thanks for talking with you. Okay. okay, stay safe, my brother. Okay, okay so Bye. we're going to take a, a break uh, and come back uh, with uh, our next guest after this. Why sit in bumper-to-bumper traffic when you can hop on Link Light Rail and fly by the gridlock? It's a smoother, easier, stress-free way to get where you want to go. Whether you're heading north to Capitol Hill and the University of Washington or south to Columbia City, Tukwila, and the airport, Link Light Rail will get you there quickly and safely. And if you have an ORCA card, even better. Just tap on the yellow card reader when you get on and listen for the beep to let you know your card has been accepted. Then tap your card reader again once you've reached your destination and listen for the double beep to let you know you've tapped off correctly. To find the closest Link Light Rail station or to learn how to get an ORCA card, just go to soundtransit.org and type Link Light Rail into the search bar. Sound Transit's Link Light Rail. Just another way that Sound Transit is powering progress. Hi, my name is Mian Rice, the Diversity of Contracting Director for the Port of Seattle. As a public agency, the Port of Seattle serves the community and our investments should benefit everyone who lives and works here. The Port is committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion 
and to leveling the playing field. That means continuing to open doors to contracting opportunities to all, especially women and minority-owned and disadvantaged businesses. How can you participate? List your business in Vendor Connect, a database of contractors. Attend PortGen workshops to learn how to do business with the port. Learn more about contracting opportunities at portseattle.org. For more information on operating a concessions at Seattle Tacoma International Airport, visit lease.ctacshops.com. Bored with the other stations? Hammering away on the same old talking points? Try Alternative Talk 1150 and get some variety. Haywood Evans and Eddie Rye, your co-hosts of Quarantine at Home. And Ian Rice is on the job, and that's our next guest. Ian Rice is the Director of Diversity and Contracting for the Port of Seattle. And I had met, he's on, a lot you can read about him on my Facebook page. Uh, Ian, uh, welcome to Urban Forum Northwest. Uh, uh, I don't know if you got a chance to hear your commercial uh, that Eric played. Well, you'll be hearing it every Thursday a couple of times anyway. But, Mia, why don't you just give us a little bit about your background uh, before we go into the uh, task at hand and talk about your, your new position at the Port of Seattle. Okay. Thanks, Eddie. And, and uh, hello, listeners out there in Seattle metropolitan area. Um, my name is Mian Rice. Uh, gosh, I was born, born and raised Seattleite. I'm one of the, the few out there that, uh, that are still around. Um, master's in civil engineering, uh, engineer by trade. Uh, gosh, been working both public and private sectors, um, you know, from WashDOT to City to CH Camille, Turner Construction, and now Port of Seattle. So I've had a very uh, long career in public and private sector. So um, I was just very fortunate enough to, to land this job about a year ago. And so um, here we go. It's a fun time. Okay, and uh, you also were all-star football player at Garfield, right? I w- yes, I did. I played, <laughs> I played football uh, for Garfield High School. Yeah, absolutely. The, the best, uh, best school in the, in the city of Seattle, for sure. Uh, the, the other thing, too, is that, you know, this is uh, Garfield's centennial uh, uh, anniversary. And uh, due to uh, the coronavirus, I think it's going to be postponed. It's going to be June 6th. And Quincy Jones, who's a Garfield grad in the 50 or 51, somewhere around there, Anyway, he was an honorary chair, but that's going to, that's going to be this virus is postponing everything. So, man, uh, before I go to Hayward with his questions, I just want why don't you just describe with our to our listeners, and also I want to let you know that not only uh, you speaking to people in the Seattle metropolitan area, mm-hmm. this is being streamed on the World Wide Web, so you might have somebody at FAA listening to you in D.C. Copy so, that. Anyway. Exciting <laughs> times. I'm okay with that. Okay. I'm okay, definitely so, okay with that. Yeah, so, yeah. so uh, let me let me uh, let me begin. Start from the beginning. So, I, as I was fortunate enough to get this this role as diversity and contracting director for the Port of Seattle, but I want to give some folks, uh, listeners, some context. Back in 2018, our port commissioners, along with the executive director and executive leadership team. Uh, all got together and said, we still need to do some uh, better in regards to women minority participation. And, um, and we need to uh, do whatever we can from a policy perspective to, to move this needle. Now, as part of moving this needle, uh, a, um, in 2018, 
a uh, that's when the creation of the uh, diversity and contracting policy directive was enacted. And what does that mean? That means that as part of the directive, and there's some more things in there, but part of the directive was to construct, conduct uh, two true, true affirmative efforts when it comes down to women minority participation. And and that was that mean that also that means that every uh, division and department within the Port of Seattle sets annual Wimby aspirational goals. That's something that has not been done before that I know of um, since I've been at the port. Uh, and also, each part of the division's directors and department directors, um, they are uh, as part of their annual performance review. So how did they do for setting those goals at the end of the year, and did they hit them? Or, you know, and if not, then what happened? So uh, that is something that has, was part of the policy directive. And one, two of the main items that I really appreciate here, um, it was increasing the port-wide five-year uh, goal. They had five-year benchmarks of uh, increasing to 15% the amount spend on women-minority contracts. And then secondly, to triple the number of uh, WIMBY women minority businesses uh, doing business with the Port of Seattle. So those are some uh, great goals in which was established back in uh, 2018. And with 29, And let me give you some uh, even more context to the listeners. Uh, in 2018, uh, the Port of Seattle did 11% women minority participation. So that is essentially what we're trying to push on. Now, getting down into the details within both um, uh, the nitty-gritty, within, I would say, within all contracts, construction, majority of the contracts, within the construction and non-construction, uh, the port has uh, initiated WIMBY uh, aspirational goals and, and inclusion plans on our contracts. So that really was the machine that also helped move the ball forward. So those primes out there who are maybe listening and you will start seeing or you what I saw last year, um, a huge uh, increase of, of um, questions as relates to inclusion. How did you do in terms of outreaching to the women minority businesses out there to participate on port projects? So as, uh, as of 2019, the first full year of the diversity and contracting operations since I've been at the helm here, uh, the port achieved, for the first full year, actually achieved the 15%, which, what does that mean? That means that we were talking about a $115 million going to women and minority businesses. That was out of the total of what, though? This is, oh, so we're talking, I'll get that number to you real quick. Um, I do know that we have in... Let's see, 15% of 115 million. I can go to that total, get that to you soon. But I got to tell you, um, we can always throw out percentages. But the but I want to talk to you about the firms because there are 297 firms that actually did work with the Port of Seattle. That equates to that 15%. So um, we are. I know that online next week you'll be able to see the full details. Um, 
uh, of the 2019 Diversity and Contracting Report, uh, which would give you all the breakdown of, of the 2019 efforts along with the, uh, 20, along with the 2020 uh, divisional goals. Um, so uh, for even more detailed information for those of you folks out there that says, hey, I want to get, even get the, down to the ethnicity breakdown, the report will show that as well. Okay, then I know Haven had a question or two. Oh, yeah, yeah. Me, uh, man, first, congratulations again on your position. We know you held it for a while. We're very, very proud of you. Uh, I'm going to go straight, straight to the to the point for me. Now, what about the descendants of the United States enslaved? What, what's up with that in terms of making sure that those numbers are not skewed? Say that one more time. I didn't hear you. Sorry. Descendants of the United States enslaved. Is that going to be incorporated as a category for keeping numbers? Well, uh, for right now, we're, we are including everything from African-American to uh, uh, non-African-American blacks. But uh, that's something we'll have to talk about a little bit further in terms of how we're going to move that ball forward to do a, even more of a breakout of that. So, Yeah, that's a, push. that's a push we have going in D.C. with the Congressional Black Caucus as well because of the fact that that ignores the 400 years that certain people built this joint for free. Mm-hmm. Black History Month was just just last month, and you know you think about fifteen hundred doing Reconstruction, fifteen hundred black uh, former slaves serving in uh, appointed elected positions all throughout the South, including the governor of Louisiana and the Secretary of State in South Carolina. If you just imagine that racism wouldn't have uh, came in, with Andrew Johnson, where we would be today, yeah. we would need an MBE program. Yeah, we would have with it. folks would be asking us for. For some help, but that's how that's how discrimination, racism works in this country. Right. So that's what people can't forget. Is that's why we keep talking about African descendants of the United States enslaved, because we've been here and now we know what some people will do. They will take anybody other than an African descendant of the United States enslaved, because sure. we're the most resented population uh, in America, and, and and the people that built the joint for free, as Angela Bryant would say. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Hayward, with your last question. Well, this yeah, is a, now, now, I mean, are there any workshops or anything coming up with people who want to get involved? And also, the Contractors Resource Center, are you looking at the McKinney Center? Are you looking at making sure that there's a satellite office in the new McKinney Center? So, so let, me take the, let me take the first one, uh, the first question first. The, the, so yes, we do have um, we do have a number of uh, trainings and workshops through the uh, small business and Wimby. Um, uh, I guess a uh, uh, I, I forgive me when I say that small business and Wimby training workshops through what they call Port of Seattle Small Business Generator, which is Port Gen. Sorry, that's a mouthful, but so basically we do have a number of workshops and trainings about how the how the Port of Seattle actually works and um and also during these uh workshops and trainings identifying what those upcoming opportunities are for those women minority businesses and uh and also a chance to network with some of the primes that are out there that are looking to to partner up with uh small uh women businesses so and, and well, here's one thing, man, is that every month or as often as necessary, uh, you can have these airways to give updates, provide information about what's coming up, and hopefully uh, I wouldn't advise anybody to go to a workshop uh, during this time because of the virus. That's right. We have to yeah. have 
You know, so, I mean, I'm not hardly leaving the house, so uh, a workshop right now wouldn't be good. But I'm just trying to figure out what happens to the in people who are impacted by, by the coronavirus, the folks. Uh, good question. Yeah, I'm well, just curious well, that's a good know, question. Will, will they get, because we know there's not much business at the airport, and I'm just wondering, uh, will those folks, how will they survive? Uh, is this something that this will happen through the state, or is the port participating in that as well? Well, I, I know this, we're following the state's lead, um, okay. and that's something I'll have to uh, talk with our executive director. But what I can say is that for those folks who are um, uh, looking for those opportunities, we are, because of this uh, COVID-19 issues, we're putting as much as we possibly can from um, our, I guess you could say, our um, putting everything online. And doing streaming, so that way folks don't uh, can't don't miss those opportunities. So we're moving the ball forward. I understand everybody's uh, a lot of folks these days are cooped up in the house, but they're we're trying to to keep the ball rolling, but at the same time being very considerate of of, of the uh, uh, challenges that we have today. So, um, man, before those small businesses, did you hear Senator Hashigawa earlier? What's the possibility of having that uh, that debt relief? during this period of time for those businesses because they're absolutely getting impacted. Right. No, you're absolutely right. And I think that we are, again, those are like the SBA uh, folks actually have loans and they have a lot of different items within. uh, We're putting together a nice little package here so that way we can direct uh, folks to the feds and also to the state and also to SBA uh, even more so about where and how to find uh, those locations and uh, to, to develop those relief uh, packages. And I'm, I'm talking about the port saying that they're not going to take their cut until this thing is over, particularly as it impacts small businesses. I mean, is that something that can be presented to Matrix? He's pretty, he's pretty great, your executive. Absolutely. But has that been brought yeah, to him to say relieve the debt to those businesses? They're getting negatively impacted because there's basically no foot traffic at the airport. Yeah. They're not generating money, but the bills are still coming in. Right. Okay. Well, we gotta go. We gotta move on. Uh, Hayward and me and me and we'll we'll have you on frequently uh, as one of the sponsors of the program. But the uh, port is a uh, is the economic engine for this region, so it's definitely it's really important when you have a major employer and being able to dialogue with a person that's going to set policy. So thank you very much, and we'll be talking with you soon, Mia. Thank you. Thank you both. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Our next guest is Representative Sharon Tomiko Santos. Uh, Representative Santos was the sponsor of House Bill 1918. It created the Central District Community Preservation Development Authority, formerly known as SVI and SOIC. And uh, most recently we had some news from the state that uh, $1.3 million will be dedicated uh, to the project. I've been getting all kind of questions from folks about when the selection committee is going to be formed, when the board is going to be appointed. So Representative Santos, thank you, thank you, and thank you for all the work you did for the community in Olympia the last few years. So uh, Representative Santos also had legislation uh, to restore affirmative action uh, in Washington State, and a person of color killed it uh, two years in a row, and now she has audacity to run for Congress. But anyway, I'll leave you out of that one. <laughs> Representative Santos, I said what I had to say. So welcome to Reform Northwest with Hayward Evans and Eddie Wright. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me on your show today. How are you both doing? Uh, well, we're, oh, we're very quarantined good. at home. Amen. <laughs> 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 so, 
That's right, and I hope that all of your listeners are as uh, as well as they can, um, staying at home and uh, social distancing and uh, practicing compassion for um, your neighbors who uh, may be elderly or in poor health and may need help getting around. So, um, but I am glad to be speaking to all of you. And. Uh... Uh, why don't you just give us a quick update? You know, I've been feeling a lot of calls from folks. They want to be on the board. They want to be on the committee. And, and like I told them, I am not in charge of this at all. It's uh, right. the, 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 the legislative delegation from the 37th District and representatives from the Pastors and McKinney Coalition. Uh, there will be a group selected to work with the legislative delegation to appoint uh, a board, of uh, a, a committee to uh, select a board of directors. So can you just clarify that whole process for our listeners? Sure. I know it's a little bit complicated, but I think it is worth um, uh, running through again. Um, the legislation, so this is the state legislation that governs all community preservation and development authorities. Um, it has uh, some very specific requirements about who can serve on a board. Um, in addition, when we passed House Bill 1918, we changed um, the process for uh, choosing the inaugural or the first uh, board of directors for ACPDA. Um, for that, we have to thank um, the older sister uh, CPDA of um, the Central District CPDA, and that is um, the historic South Downtown, because they were the first uh, to be created in the state. We're getting benefit of their lessons learned and some of the challenges they faced in starting up from scratch. Um, so under the new uh, requirements, the legislative delegation uh, in whose district uh, a, a, a community preservation and development authority is proposed must work in collaboration with those who are proposing the formation of a community preservation development authority. In this case, it would be the McKinney Coalition to establish an, a selection committee. The selection committee is the committee that is responsible for actually then choosing the inaugural board of directors. So, the, um, so that's the first thing that I wanted to, to lay out there is the um, McKinney Coalition uh, representatives of pastors, and the pastors self-selected. So uh, we have uh, Pastor Manaway, Pastor Broughton, Pastor Lewis, and Pastor Anderson, as well as Reverend Paul Ben, representing the um, uh, McKinney Coalition. And then we have uh, State Senator Rebecca Saldana, State Representative Eric Pettigrew, and myself representing the 37th Legislative District. We had uh, several uh, phone uh, teleconferences uh, whereby we uh, talked about what were the criteria we were looking for in a selection committee uh, and um, then began uh, uh, considering names. And uh, through that process, we have identified a group of five individuals 
um, to serve on the selection committee, and I am not at liberty at this moment to share those names um, because uh, these uh, selection committee members are still in the process of being contacted. And so just in case um, somebody declines the uh, invitation to participate in the selection committee, I just don't want to put the those names out quite yet until um, an official action has been taken. That official action is going to be taken later on uh, this month or um, at the beginning of next month um, to pull together, um, well, it was supposed to be a face-to-face, but now with the governor's proclamation, we're going to have to do it a different way. But we were going to pull together a meeting of uh, the McKinney Coalition, the 37th Legislative District, where we officially then select the members of the selection committee. So they would all be present there um, and uh, to engage in a conversation around what their responsibilities and duties and expectations would be. Um, once the selection committee is uh, officially selected, then the, um, uh, those who uh, were part of the group um, to choose the selection committee, meaning the 37th Legislative District, as well as the, um, the pastors who have been participating in the process, will no longer have an official um, role uh, with respect to the work of the selection committee. We will lay out what their uh, uh, task at hand is and what we are hoping to uh, obtain from them. But officially, we will not have a role. The selection committee, on the other hand, both by statute and then by um, the, uh, the types of expectations that the McKinney Coalition and discussed with the 37th Legislative District Delegation, um, will have to choose uh, 11 members of a 13-member board of directors for the CPDA. Um, the, uh, the characteristics of those uh, 11 members are laid out in statute. Um, and uh, so they are, just as a reminder to your audience members, um, the uh, requirements uh, for that are... Um, that two members own, operate, or represent businesses within the community, two members reside in the community, two members are involved in providing nonprofit community or social services within the community, two members are involved in the arts and entertainment within the community, two members uh, have uh, possess knowledge of the community's culture and history, one member is involved in a nonprofit planning or a public planning organization that directly serves the impacted community. And then the two other um, members that the selection committee will not choose are representatives of the local legislative authority, uh, meaning uh, the uh, city of Seattle and King County. Um, as you might expect, the city and the county get to choose their own representatives. Um, it is our uh, hope and expectation uh, that, and the, the hope and expectation we will convey to the selection committee, that they choose those members and have them ready to go uh, 
by the end of the fiscal year. And the fiscal year for the state ends on June 30th. So that's the timeline and the process um, that we have today. Well, Representative Santos, uh, before I let Hayward in, I just wanted to ask, in terms of uh, the uh, $1.3 million that was allocated, uh, and I guess this conversation we could also have offline, that that funds would be accessible, what, July 1? Um, that is a good question. It depends on how they've written it. Um, uh, the, the, I think that July 1 is probably the way that it would uh, normally come uh, forward, is that when we write a supplemental budget, typically what we do is we uh, write in appropriations for the second year of the biennium. Uh, so the second year of the biennium begins on July 1st of 2020, and it ends on July 30, or excuse me, June 30th of uh, 2021. And because this is the uh, second, uh, or this is what we call the supplemental budget year, that's usually the period for which we are um, uh, making appropriations. Okay. Um, now, the other question say, I have is that can we seek funds from other entities? Did this happen before or after, or is this something to be done through the McKinney Coalition's uh, nonprofit? And I need to have your input on that because uh, we know the current contract with the Department of Commerce, I think, expires with uh, the current contractor on, on uh, March 30th. And I just wanted to find out what plans were there to uh, continue to operate past that date. So um, I. Uh I cannot answer any question around contracts. Okay. Uh, that would be between uh, the state agency and the contractor. Um, and mm -hmm. honestly, I don't have any knowledge of uh, uh, where any particular contract stands. What I can say is that um, the uh, funding that has been set aside, is, the 1.3, is primarily uh, for the uh, replacement of the roof um, so that we can begin to, or we, so that the um, board of directors for the CDCPDA uh, can begin to have um, a paying tenants uh, in the building as soon as possible. So I do know that that money is uh, uh, primarily designated for replacing the roof as well as for the project management cost. Uh, okay. There is now in terms uh, of the project money, management cost. Uh, will the board select a project manager? Um, again, you're asking uh, uh, a question that I'm not going to be able to answer uh, okay. Okay. right now. Okay, that, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, um, but what I was going to say is that uh, there is additional money uh, elsewhere. Um, that was left over from uh, the first year funding that will be carried over to the second year funding around keeping the building warm. And you know that one of the things that we tried to do was to make sure that the building itself didn't go into a situation where everything is cut off, electricity, heat, um, et cetera, um, because it's much more expensive and it could potentially create bigger problems when you allow a building to go cold. Um, 
because we appropriated enough funding last year for that purpose with money left over, um, there is still enough money uh, there to keep that building warm, uh, at least through the period of time when the legislature comes back next year um, in 2021. Uh, I guess we'll get uh, uh, information uh, from... uh, uh, we'll, we'll follow up with you, but we're out of time right now, Representative Santos. I want to thank you for all your efforts and all you've done. Certainly appreciate you. Sure. Okay. And we'll have well, you, you. We'll have you back thank on because this is going to be a, this is going to be a, something that's going down the, the the track. So we'll have to definitely have our listeners hear directly from the individual who's the prime sponsor. So thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. All right. Okay. Bye. All right. Now that was Representative Sharon Tomiko Santos. We'll come back with Jamie Elmore and Margot Jones after this. Hi, my name is Mian Rice, the Diversity and Contracting Director for the Port of Seattle. As a public agency, the Port of Seattle serves the community and our investments should benefit everyone who lives and works here. The Port is committed to equity, diversity, and inclusion and to leveling the playing field. That means continuing to open doors to contracting opportunities to all, especially women and minority-owned and disadvantaged businesses. How can you participate? List your business in Vendor Connect, a database of contractors. Attend PortGen workshops to learn how to do business with the port. Learn more about contracting opportunities at portseattle.org. For more information on operating a concessions at Seattle Tacoma International Airport, visit lease.seataxshops.com. Why sit in bumper-to-bumper traffic when you can hop on Link Light Rail and fly by the gridlock? It's a smoother, easier, stress-free way to get where you want to go. Whether you're heading north to Capitol Hill in the University of Washington or south to Columbia City, Tukwila, and the airport, Link Light Rail will get you there quickly and safely. And if you have an ORCA card, even better. Just tap on the yellow card reader when you get on and listen for the beep to let you know your card has been accepted. Then tap your card reader again once you've reached your destination and listen for the double beep to let you know you've tapped off correctly. To find the closest Link Light Rail station or to learn how to get an ORCA card, just go to soundtransit.org and type Link Light Rail into the search bar. Sound Transit's Link Light Rail. Just another way that Sound Transit is powering progress. Alternative Talk 1150. Local talk for the body, mind, and soul. Hey, what happens? I'm Eddie Ryan back on Urban Forum Northwest. We got Jamie Elmore. If you haven't seen my Facebook page, she's a gorgeous lady in that red and white posing, the editor-in-chief of her magazine. And I know she has Margot Jones on the line, so... Jamie Elmore, why don't you go ahead and kick it off and tell us what's going on with this magazine you got going. Well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to be on your show again. We are totally excited about the Vault Life magazine that will be released um, September of 2020. And this magazine will feature bald men, women, and children from around the world. And what we're doing is we're giving them an opportunity to share their stories, Um, This magazine will feature individuals that are dealing with either alopecia hair loss, um, medically induced hair loss, cancer survivors, or individuals that have decided to cut their hair off by choice. And I'm just excited to be surrounded by individuals that have 
joined my team, and one of those individuals is my creative director, Margot Jones. She is simply amazing, and she has brought uh, a level of skill set that I do not have and that I think is really important to have, you know, the right kind of people on your team. And so I'm just excited to be on your show and to have Margot assisting me and answering any questions that you guys might have. And to add to that, Mr. Rye, Margot Jones actually um, is a force to be reckoned with. She has her own business, and um, I can let her talk about what she does as well, um, besides um, being an assistant with me with the Bald Life magazine. Margo? Okay, well, Margo, go right ahead with Hayward Evans and Eddie Rye. Go ahead and let us know your story. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, and thank you for the opportunity uh, to be here on your show today. Um, Yes, I am uh, definitely uh, very, very honored to be a part of Jamie Elmore's movement and what she has going here, not just with the Alopecia Support Group, but with, you know, the Bald Life magazine and with her journey. Um, I came on board with working with Jamie a few years ago as I was doing a program in the community um, for uh, uh, one of the Seattle youth and, uh, what is it, the Seattle youth, and sorry, I'm a little bit nervous, you guys, Um, but I came on with a program that we were doing, the Crown and Glory Project, and at that time I had spoke to Jamie um, about working with some of the youth and just sharing her story with them. And as a creative director and fashion stylist and a community uh, leader as well as mentor to a lot of young women in the community, I felt that it was important for me to get involved and show them someone, you know, outside of the vanity that people think about with, you know, people being so, you know, beautiful with all these weaves and long hair and all this. There's a story to be told. And Jamie um, definitely was, you know, a survivor of something that I felt was um that the young youth needed to hear about. So I came on board for that. Um, and so I don't know if that's your question, but that's pretty much why I got involved with what, what Jamie's doing here. Yeah, I, th- I think that's, uh, that, that's a real good story. Jamie, why don't you uh, share with our listeners uh, when the, mag- the magazine will be coming out. And also I want you, if you could take a minute and just talk about the alopecia support group. And as I told you, I saw uh, uh, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley uh, in during the Congressional Black Caucus, and she had her long black wig on. And then I guess after she hooked up with you, she decided to come out, and she's gorgeous too, without any hair. So, uh, and you set you you opening the door and setting the stage for a lot of people to just go ahead and and be proud of who they are. And I'm so uh, proud of you for doing that. Well, well thank you. I'm not going to take the credit for um, Representative. Presley for coming out about her story, but I will say that with her coming out with her story, she has definitely opened the door for more people to be honest and to be open about their journey. But again, um, the Bald Life magazine is under my personal brand, my own umbrella, and then also I have the Alopecia Support Group, and that is a nonprofit that I started back in 2009. And with that journey with the Alopecia Support Group, I felt that there was um, a need to create more of a platform, actually more platforms for people to heal. And that's where the Bald Life magazine came into place. And I also want to talk about the, uh, the the writers that I have that will be joining my team as well. Actually, they are already on, on board. I have a doctor who is specializes in um, autoimmune disease. I have a fitness coach. I have a plant-based chef. I have a psychologist. Um, who else do I have? Um, 
oh, I have a Spanish editor and I have a writer that is from um, Italy. And so we are surrounded by some individuals that are experts in their own right. And the key thing that I wanted to do with this magazine is that I wanted everyone that was part of the team to either, one, have alopecia or work in that arena when it comes to hair loss. And so I was able to achieve that. So all the, the readers will have an opportunity to hear from experts in different arenas. I also also have a behavioral nurse as well, and she, she's out of New York. And so I'm just excited about the opportunity for everyone to, to read this magazine, and it will be released in a digital platform September of 2020. And we have people actually from all over the world that will be featuring their stories, um, advertising, and I just encourage all your readers to go to our website at baldlifemagazine.com. They can take a look at all the information that's there. We do have a fee right now, but we are working with individuals because we have to pay for everything. So we're working with individuals that would like to feature their stories or advertise on, on our platform. And so we're just totally excited about what's to come and the lives that will be touched and changed concerning hair loss and alopecia and all the above. Mr. Rice. Okay, well, Jamie, we, we will keep we will keep uh, your uh, uh, information about the magazine and the other good work you're doing in the community. Because I'm still uh, uh, that that story about uh, Lewis and Faye taking care of that little girl and her mother that came up, and uh, you know you really turned her life around. But so I want to thank you and Margot Jones today for taking time out to share that information with our listening audience, and uh, we'll keep you on the air as things progress. So thank you guys very much. Stay quarantined. Don't take any chances. There you go. We are. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Yes. Thank okay. You for See you thank later. You. Thank you too, Margo. Bye bye. Okay. Bye bye. Okay. Before we check out, I want to let everybody know that Urban Forum Northwest is brought to you by Sound Transit Small Business Development and Labor Compliance Office, the City of Seattle's uh, Purchasing and Construction Services Office, the Port of Seattle's Diversity and Contracting Office with me and Rice, Concourse Concession with David Fukuhara. SeaTac Bar Group with the two Desert Storm veterans, Rod O'Neill and Jerry Whitsitt. Stephanie Ogle does uh, our media, Stephanie, uh, Soul Sis Media. And uh, uh, Michelle uh, informed me that Sisters Rock the Arts will not be rocking at Rumba Notes tonight. And uh, <laughs> so I don't know how many other meetings and stuff have been canceled, but uh, uh, I know that I would advise everybody to be safe and make sure you listen to the directions that you're given. And, uh, Haywood, I guess uh, the other thing we have coming up is uh, there won't be any meetings, will there? No, no, not no. Okay. And then uh, the April 4th event, we're sorry that we had to cancel the mega event, but stay tuned because something will be happening in the very near future. So this has been Eddie Ryan, Haywood Evans, Urban Forum Northwest, and we'll be talking to you again next week, probably from home, unless they find a cure for this dreaded <laughs> disease. So we'll talk Amen. to you then. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate your service, brother.